Good evening, good evening, good evening, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of He Said, He Said, He Said, a look at the world from a seasoned Black man's perspective. I'm Alvin King, and I'd like to welcome you to this wonderful Friday, January the 28th, uh, 2022, where it is freezing where I am, okay? So uh, hopefully, if you're in a warm place, appreciate it because it is cold here in Washington, D.C., but thank you all for joining our show tonight. We are happy that you are with us. Um, and for those of you who sent me emails and texts last week because you were on the show, but you didn't hear that we were going to be dark last week, um, uh, thank you for inquiring, like, where are we and all that. I re We really do appreciate it, but we are here tonight back with you. And again, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Uh, as part of our Managing Your Finance series, we are talking about estate planning. Legal practices and social customs have traditionally made it more difficult for people of color to own real, real property. The combined, this combined with the stigma of making end-of-life plans has people of color disproportionately underrepresented in the entire world of estate planning. Terry Franklin, trust and estate litigator is on a mission to change all of that. Mr. Franklin learned from the story of his great-great-great-grandmother's emancipation from slavery in 1846 that doing an estate plan may be also an important way to be anti-racist. That's right. And Terry is here tonight to talk to all of us and share his experiences and so and, and share his story. If you have any questions, ladies and gentlemen, please, please, please ask your questions. We want to hear from you because I know you have some about estate planning. And if you're anything like me, two years ago when COVID hit, I, I, I started making plans. If I didn't know anything about estate planning, I'm a, I'm, I know now because that moment scared me. But tonight, we're going to answer all your questions and we're going to do it with a great cast, and two of them I'm going to bring on right now, Mr. Vosh Bodhi and Mr. Nigel Ashford. Hey, guys. Hey, Alvin, how are you doing? <laughs> I am well. I am well. I am well. It seemed like, you know, we, we went dark last week, but I missed you all. It seemed like it was forever. It was like, where are they? It, it seemed like a long time. And speaking of dark, you have come back here quite dark. And the lovely, sun. and lovely, <laughs> always and lovely. lovely, and lovely. <laughs> the sun was good to you, it our vaccinista. It was, it was good. It was good. And um, um, I, 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 I'm here. I know it's winter, and I'm appreciate. I'm home, but mm -hmm. it, the break was good. But I did miss you guys. I cannot lie. So thank you guys for being here tonight. So what has been going on with you guys this week? Um, anything that uh, you want to talk about? Because it's been a lot of stuff going on, a, a lot of stuff, a lot of surprises, yeah. And uh, uh, a lot of people, I, I hate to talk about, it's so eerie to talk about death, but it seems like this week, last week, from Regina King losing her son, yeah. okay? Losing her son so young. I don't know, I, I still don't know why he took his life or how he took his life, but I did know that he took his life. And um, yeah, that, that, that alone kind of shook me and uh, that. And then hearing about um, Terry Mugler, 
who in the fashion industry of where, you know, I kind of live and breathe. Um, he was one of the designers that I was able to work with, you know, while he was alive. And of course, oh, wow. anybody who knows about Terry Mugler, his collections were like timeless. Okay. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm talking epic. And then Andre Leon Talley, you know, um, you know, his, his death really shook me because I, I looked at him as being the, he was the person I looked up to in terms of, you know, oh, look at that black man doing that thing in fashion mm -hmm. and how they appreciate him, you know? So, was he an inspiration? Go ahead, Nigel. Oh, I'm sorry. Alvin, I just want to just go off of what she said, especially with Regina King's son. I think as African-American men, we really need to look at those numbers that African-American men are one of the leading ones who are taking their lives around this time. And, it, and, it's, and it's crazy, but I just want to just thank God for um, mental health, mental health therapists, psychiatrists. A lot of our African-American people are in our community now understand the benefits of um, seeking mental health and mental assistance. Um, I thank God for my therapist. I have I got my first one back in 2020 when um, COVID was like just on us. Um, so just going on that, that if, if you if you feel something or if you feel like something's wrong, like seek that mental health that you need, seek that therapy that you need. And um, also to go off of your Andre Talley comment, I hate when people say, that person was before their time. Because if it wasn't for people during that time, like this man was raised during Jim Crow era, going from DC to a small town in North Carolina, raised by his grandmother. And now he went from New York Times, Ebony Magazine, to the creative director um, of Vogue. And that was, and like you said, look at that black man. And he, because of him, he was able to open the doors for so many people of color and also show that it was okay to be a man who was fashionable, Black, um, who was metrosexual. It didn't have to come with this huge masculinity. He had color, he had flair, he had all these things, and he paved the way. And most of all, like you said, he had style. And he just created such a pathway for so many Black people, Black men, especially, that shows that we come in all different shapes and all different sizes and that we just don't fit that hyper-masculinity role. Wow. I mean, Nigel, you couldn't have said it any better. And me being a, a, produ a fashion producer and seeing someone like Andre Leon Talley embrace who he was and earn the respect that he had, it fueled me. It told me that you know I could I I didn't have to walk into a room and had to conform to ah uh, from the show last week I didn't have to uh, <laughs> wait I'm sorry I started laughing because that's terrible that's terrible I didn't have to code switch okay mm -hmm. I I could be Alvin and Andre Leon Talley really fueled me in that manner where hey and I was appreciated because I, I was who I was. And so, yes, he did pave the way. Mm -hmm. He did. He did. Vosh, you were going to say something? I, well, you answered my question. I was going to ask, was he an inspiration for you getting into fashion? And he was an inspiration for you being who you were, period. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, yeah. Uh, Andre Leontali, Sylvester, um, these were two big Black men who really paved the way for so many of us grateful yeah. that he was here and 
definitely missed. Well, he will be missed. Andre Leon Talley, rest in peace. But brother, you better know you paved the way for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And even Nigel in his, I mean, Nigel, and I'm saying, Nigel, what you just said about, yeah. you know, people respecting or, you know, knowing Andre Leon Talley in your age group and respecting who they are and knowing who he is. Uh, Nigel, you, I couldn't have said it better. Thank you right. so much. Thank you so much for that. Um, let, let me say hello to a couple was, of people. Yes, can you, can you go you ahead? They yeah, no, yeah, I just want to say hello to Edgar. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I sent him a link. I'm like, we are going live. Get on <laughs> this show. So thanks for tuning in. Alana. Uh, hello, high school friend of mine, Rose, Rose, you know, you're here every week. We are so grateful for you. Stephanie Elkins, thank you for joining us. Derwin Edwards, because Stephanie's big in uh, mental health as well as aging support. Derwin, thank you for joining us. Jessup, hello. It's so, look, we got the family all up in here. <laughs> got the family up in here. And, and you know, what, one more thing I, I also, I, to add to what Nigel said about mental health, you know, a, a young black mayor here in Hyattsville, which is right next to DC, he committed suicide this week. And so oh, that wow. is, you know, again, to your point, it is so important to get help and, mm -hmm. you know, and speak to someone and, 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 and just, again, take care of that part of your life because your mental health is so important. So mm -hmm. Nigel, thank you for, for bringing that up in that vein. So I, I appreciate that as, as well. Hello everybody, okay. Are we ready to talk about estate planning? Yes, okay. we are. This are is such an exciting topic. People have been excited about talking about estate planning. We've been talking to um, to Randy yeah. for so long about how to build generational generational wealth and your finances, getting those in order. Now that y'all have the, all that information and you've got some money and some property, now it's time to talk a little bit about estate planning. And this is going to take a really great great turn in this conversation because we've got some history to talk about love and all kinds of things so yeah let's jump into it all right stephanie says estate planning is sexy girl i like that <laughs> you know you, you made me sit up on my chair stephanie. okay so um uh terence terence m franklin is a seasoned attorney with nearly three decades of experience handling trusts and estates and probate litigation disputes and appeals Mr. Franklin has extensive trial and appellate experience, including successful published appeals and the landmark Mueller case, which has brought before the California Supreme Court. He has been recognized by numerous uh, industry awards, including receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award by Chambers and Partners Diversity and Inclusion in 2021. Mr. Franklin was also named Best Lawyers Lawyer of the Year in 2016 for trust and estates, uh, estates litigation in Los Angeles, which is awarded to individual attorneys with the highest overall peer feedback for a specific practice and uh, geographic region. Admitted to practice in California, Terry is a graduate of Harvard Law School and obtained his Bachelor's of Science from North Northwestern University. Prior to Sachs, Glacier, Franklin, and Lodice, he practiced with the Los Angeles office of Morrison and Forrester and as a partner at Ross, Sachs, and Glacier LLP. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and family, please welcome to our family now, 
Mr. Terry Franklin. Terry, come on in here, guy. Hey, how are <laughs> you? Hey. It's great to see you. It's always nice to have people say nice things about you before you show up. Like, oh, okay. I didn't know I had all that going on. So. <laughs> Terry, thank you. Thank you, Terry. Terry also, Terry also went to school um, with former First Lady Michelle Obama. So perhaps, oh. just perhaps before he leaves, he might have a story or two to tell. But we got mm. to talk about the state. We went to high first. school together and law school, and then Barack was a couple years behind me. So it was oh, a little wow. overlap. That is so dope. Am I talking to royalty? You better win that. <laughs> I'm talking to royalty. <laughs> Terry, thank you. Welcome to our family, man. Okay. Uh, we, we are so happy that you're here. We've been talking about this topic and to have someone of your stature and your experience to share with us tonight is really an honor. And I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank well, you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, when Vash, uh, suggested that I might want to come on the show. I was like, okay, yeah, I'd love to. And 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 I know we're talking a lot about estate planning, but the, the big reminder for, for everybody is that I, I fight about the stuff that goes wrong, but that's part of the reason why I think I probably can talk some about how important, how important it is because so often people don't get their stuff together in advance. So yeah. I'm just happy to be here. It's a Friday afternoon here, and I guess it's evening where you are, but here on the West Coast, it's uh, still sunny, and I'm not going to talk about the weather. Y'all don't no, pl don't, please, don't. please don't. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> you don't want to know. And my Medea voice, we got you. Okay. So, so Terry, I'm going to open the, the show tonight with questionings. Um, so, as I mentioned, you are a trust and estate litigator. Can you share with us what that is and what is your role? Absolutely. So, um, you know, there are people who do trust and states in various kinds of ways, but I'm a litigator, which means I go to court. I do will contests, there's family disputes, uh, somebody might, you know, you somebody who's a trustee of a trust runs off with the money and so they go after him or, or beneficiaries aren't happy with how things are managed. All that kind of stuff is what I get into. So um, uh, those kinds of things are what, what I primarily do. Uh, I've been doing this since, I don't know, 1992 and have had various cases. Sometimes you end up with those uh, you know, I, I, one of the first cases I worked on involved Andre Cleveland's estate. Um, you know, too often we don't have the um, the planning done in advance, and so that's part of the reason why this has become sort of a mission for me is really to encourage African American Black people to really make sure that they have their stuff in place. Uh, you think you're you think you're prepared, but you got to make sure you're prepared not only for death but also the other possibility that somehow mm -hmm. you could be in an accident or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, trust and estates litigation. I handle disputes that involve trusts and estates and uh, breach of fiduciary duty claims. I have a question for you. What are the different ways that someone can actually leave or bequeath their property? So everything is somewhat state by state, but the basic idea is this. The, the simple thing that pretty much everybody needs is going to be a will. A will basically says uh, who you are, what you owned, uh, who you're who you care about and what you want to have to happen to your property. Uh, <laughs> so you guys to care about somebody to send them stuff and you don't care about them if you don't. Do I okay. really care? I don't know. Uh, you will not have a repass. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> they have this term in the law, the natural objects of your bounty, the people that you'd expect your estate to go to, but that ain't always true. Cause you know, 
<laughs> the folk you are in your family are always the ones you want to take care of. But yeah, mm -hmm. basically the the simple, uh, the most elemental parts of a will is that you know it needs to say who you are, that that this is a document that is intending to transfer your property, who it is that's supposed to get the property and what the property is. So that's sort of the basic fundamental thing. And then uh, many people have what they call a living trust, which is uh, a, an instrument where you transfer your ownership during your lifetime into an instrument, uh, which is called a trust. And typically you would be your own trustee. So you manage your assets just as you would if they were um, your own money in a bank account. But it gives you the ability, at least in California, to avoid probate. And probate is the process that happens to a will if you don't have a trust, uh, because when you die, the whole world needs to know what happened to your property, basically. So there aren't disputes later on about what came to your of your home or your car or whatever. So probate is a process that uh, takes longer. You know, it, it can take a long time. Uh, there's a cost to it, um, both. There's a attorney's fees that have to be paid, and there's an, a, a, a commission that has to be paid to the um, executor of the estate. So a trust is an instrument that helps you to avoid probate. So many people have a will and a trust as their basic estate plan. And then there's other documents that you should have, um, like advanced health care directives that says, what's going to happen to me if I get sick? Um, if, who's going to take care of me? If I have children, who's going to be responsible for my children? Um, and then there's also a general power or a power of attorney. That's a document that allows someone else to handle your affairs in the case you can't handle it yourself. Can I ask this? Oh, I'm sorry, Nigel. I, no, I, I just on that note is is I don't know if this is a yes a yes or no question, but do you have to be married or have to be legally bind to someone to to have a will or trust? Into okay, all right. I'm just, okay. Right. Absolutely not. Uh, you don't have to have any particular relationship. Uh, in some cases, maybe that's even more reason why you'd want to make sure uh, if you're single and don't have anybody in your life. Uh, if you pass away, everything's going to go to your relatives. There's a, the law assumes that the way that things are supposed to go is that first your children, if you don't have children, then to your parents, if you don't have parents, then to uh, your children's children. And so there's a way that it happens automatically, what we call intestate succession. But if you don't say who it is that you want your property to go to, you have somebody that you care about in your life, a, a, you know, a lover, a partner, a friend. Uh, charitable organizations, you know, we we should be supporting organizations with whatever money we have uh, when, when we go away. Um, and so all of these are things that you should think about whether you're single or married, at least if you if you care, if you like, well, I don't give a shit, what happens when I'm gone? Yeah, <laughs> let the property go where it goes. Then I guess you don't need an estate plan. But most of us, uh, especially since we are mature men here, we're thinking about our lives and our legacies mm -hmm. and, and, and what our lives stood for and what we leave behind. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Elkins said estate planning is good for a family of choice, which is very important for us as gay men, because typically our family of choice is just as strong and sometimes not stronger than mm -hmm. blood relations. Um, Especially that, because then you, you sometimes have a choice that you've made that your family may not respect or may not be down with, and yet they can come in and make a decision about how right. your property is going to go or who's going to decide how your medical care is going to be when you have a partner or a lover, perhaps you're closeted. And so 
you know, you haven't shared with your family these experiences. And, you know, that still happens that family comes in and mom's like, no, no, I don't care who you are. Um, and and right. she has that right by law unless you take the steps to uh, to tell the world what your intention is. Now, oh, Terrence, I, um, I have a, a friend. He, um, his sister died. She had a life insurance policy and she left the money towards her kids. And she was making approximately 40000 a year, let's say. Um, but the life insurance policy was worth $1 million. And she left it to her 18-year-old and her 16-year-old. So what is your advice when you have such young teenagers who are about to inherit this large amount of money and how to strategize and make sure that it goes out properly because I don't think she knew that she was going to leave so early, leaving a 16 mm. 18 year old. Yeah. Well, again, I'm not an estate planner and I also don't want to be giving legal advice, but I, but, uh, if you have a plan in advance, then you can, uh, either set up a trust so that part of what a trust does is it decides what would happen to your property when you were gone. So even if you didn't have a significant amount of assets, but you had an insurance policy that you knew was going to provide for your children. You can include language in your trust that says, I'm establishing this trust and it's going to dole out the money with sufficient amount for them to have income for their necessities over the course of their life. And maybe they'll get distributions of 25% uh, at the age of 25, you know, the 50% uh, at age 40 and the, the remainder at some later age so that you sort of meet it out and, mm -hmm. and you get to make that choice uh, if you establish a trust in advance. So these are the kinds of things that are important to give you that, that power and that control. Uh, the other thing for minor children is that they're probably not legally able to, uh, they're not legally competent to own that kind of property. So they may have to have a guardianship set up, which is a whole other process that is, um, similar to the Britney Spears issue. She had a conservatorship, but it's uh, similar in their different states. But um, that's another thing that you would want to have designated in your estate plan is who you would want to be the guardian, who would be responsible for making sure that your children's needs are going to be taken care of. Um, and they'll have to, you know, if there's a guardianship established, they'll have to account to the court, make reported accountings. And when that person turns 18, they have to let them know what happened to it. But yeah, planning ahead is exactly what estate planning is. And so it's making sure that you avoid the unexpected uh, and anticipate those things that could happen. So I, I see a couple of questions here I want to get to. Um, Robin, Robin says, good evening. How do you establish a living trust? And Blue Beatty said, how good is a handwritten will? Mm -hmm. OK. Uh, how do you establish a living trust? Uh, you go see a lawyer, typically. A lawyer will prepare a trust for you. And what it is, there are ways that you could also sort of make an oral trust, or the court will sometimes enforce an oral trust if you make certain statements in certain ways. But don't rely on that. What you want to have is a document that a lawyer typically has prepared that says, um, you know, the, again, the elements of it are very simple. I am who I am. Uh, I am establishing a trust. And the trustee is to be, you know, myself until I pass away and, or somebody else later on. And their responsibility is to do thus and such. So it's, the concept is simple uh, and it gets more complicated depending on the complexity of your assets and what it is that you own. Uh, the other question was, how 
valuable or how useful is a handwritten will. If you got nothing else, it's better to have a handwritten will. Uh, what we call a holographic will is a will that expresses what it is that you want, but it has to be in your own handwriting uh, in order typically for it to be effective. And it should typically have all the same elements that we would have in a formal will, that it says who you are, what it is that you're trying to do, what the property is, and that you are now making this will and signing it and dating it in your own handwriting. There's different cases that get into uh, where the person sort of made some marks on the document and then somebody else wrote something else on it and uh, somebody actually probated a, uh, an iPad recently uh, in another jurisdiction It wasn't in California. But weird things happen and they all sort of get played out in the probate courts because you have to figure out who owns the property. And as long as there's something worth the value, somebody's going to come to me and fight about it. So yeah, you can have a, um, a, a handwritten will, but if you have a handwritten will, it must be in your own handwriting and you should make sure that it is signed and you should make sure that it says who you are, what it is you're trying to give away and um, you know, what Does your intention is. Does it have to be notarized? Should it be notarized? Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's an interesting thing. Uh, a, a holographic will does not have to be notarized. A formal will that is prepared that you sign uh, um, that, that is not handwritten by you saying what you're doing has to have, in most jurisdictions, two witnesses. California requires two witnesses to, to, a, to a will. Uh, neither a will nor a trust, at least in California, are required to be notarized um, as long as it's signed by the, the person who's establishing um, the trust. And typically also with a trust, you'll also say, attached is a schedule of the assets that are intended to be included in this trust. Uh, and so they will usually call that an exhibit A, but um, um, I lost track of whatever the question was, but yeah, there's, there's different, there's different aspects to it. So consult a lawyer, a competent lawyer in your jurisdiction. Uh, there's an organization called the Association of Black Estate Planning Professionals that was started a couple of years ago. That's a national organization that is sort of a uh, collects names of people and it's a they have a directory and will help you find the right people. Okay. Right on. Well, Terry, this is a very specific type of law. How did you get into this particular form of law? That's a good question. Uh, I was doing general litigation when I graduated from law school at a big law firm. And um, a couple of the people who were partners at the firm, well, there was a person who was a partner and he was leaving to start a new practice. And at that time, most people either were uh, estate planners who did probate and uh, did estate plans, or you were a litigator and you went to court and fought about, uh, you know, Dow Chemical or you know this company or that company. And there wasn't really probate litigation. You know, you'd kind of not really have the expertise to walk both of those lines. Well, this lawyer that I was working with, it was a partner who was a mentor to me, said, "Hey, you know." Come, come work with us if you'd like to try to do something different. And uh, about a year and a half later, I was sort of, you know, when you're young, you, you do something a couple of years, you're like, oh my God, I've been doing this forever. I want to move on. And you look back now, it's been 30 plus years. You go, oh my God, I could have done that longer, but it's like it was forever, right? Uh, yeah. But it's perspective. Uh, so I left and I joined that firm and, um, and found that it was interesting because, you know, it's interesting people with uh, specific facts and um, it's not just 
a million dollars here versus a million dollars there, one insurance company versus another. But really, you know, these are issues that affect people's lives. So I have found that to be very rewarding. Um, and again, I stumbled on it, but I later learned that this really is my mission because I've found some information about my own family history that has led me to understand that I fell into this unusual practice area for a very specific reason. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's a good tease. I like that because we're going to yeah. get into that in a little bit. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, he, he had already put a tease out there about his mission. Okay, so. I'm a tease, you know, tease a little. So as long as you pay off. So how did that lead to your, to your life's mission, Terry? Hmm. So uh, I've been practicing doing trust and estate litigation for about uh, 25 years um, when uh, I found out that there was uh, actually a, a story in my own family history, uh, a will contest. Uh, my, it turns out that my great, 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 great grandmother uh, was an enslaved woman and she was owned by my great, 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 great grandfather. Hmm. Now, he did a will in 1846 that set her free along with her eight children and her six grandchildren, and uh, they had to make their way to freedom. Uh, but I didn't know any of this. Um, and uh, in 2014, I had a great aunt who was turning 100, and I wanted to do something special to commemorate her life and uh, how significant she'd been for our family because she had you know, she was born in 1914. She walked four miles each way to get her college degree at Southern Illinois University. And she married a Tuskegee Airman. And uh, she traveled with him when, uh, before he went off to war. And she taught the other children of Tuskegee Airmen. But she was a matriarch in her family. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wanted to do something special to commemorate her, um, her life uh, as she was turning 100. And I remembered. And if I'm going too far into the details of this story, I'll stop me. But I remember that we had this family reunion a few years before. And part of the family reunion materials included like this little excerpt of a will. It was typed up hand, like in a cursive font. Some of us are old enough to remember fonts. You take that little ball, you put it in the, computer, <laughs> in the typewriter, and you type it. So somebody had done something in a cursive font because they wanted to make it seem like handwriting. And it was a short portion of this little will. It was an excerpt that said, I, John Sutton, being of sound mind, but infirm in body, uh, hereby, you know, create this last will and testament. It said in God's name, amen, at the top. And it said that I own the following property, to wit, a mulatto slave, Lucy, aged about 45, and her eight children, and it named them all by, you know, name and age, Easter age 27, all the way down to the little toddler who was just 14 months old. And it said, you know, I want them all to be set free and uh, to be moved to a state like Ohio or Indiana or Illinois, a free state. And um, so, you know, I wanted to try to track down a copy of this will to commemorate Aunt Viola's birthday. In fact, here she is. Uh, kind of hard to see with glare in my ring light, but there's Aunt Viola there. And that's her husband, Uncle Harold, behind her. Uh, that's my grandmother and grandfather there. My great grandparents are here. Uh, so they had, um, so I wanted to find this, uh, this document and um, I went looking through my old papers back to uh, uh, this reunion from 2001 and um, I thought, I'm a trust and estates litigator. I, I should be able to find these documents, right? Um, because the excerpt in the page said exactly where the, they had been recorded, that there was a copy that was recorded in Southern Illinois, Pope County 
that there was a copy that was recorded in uh, Ware County, Georgia, where the family had lived. And the original was in Duval County, Florida, in Jacksonville. Wow. So I'm like, I'm a fellow in the American College of Trust and Estates Council. I, I was the first, <laughs> I was the first African American fellow in the college um, in 2001, um, and um, which is still Fabulous. frustrating. Still frustrating to me uh, that organization that was in existence since 1949 uh, that I had the. Mm -hmm the timing to be the first because i certainly shouldn't have been the first and i've been working hard to get more in there i think there's six of us now but it's a, it's a slow going battle but uh but it's a process um but i knew i had this directory and i could call people up in georgia in in, in florida and i should be able to ask them if they could help me so i called a couple lawyers and i left messages i said i'm looking for this document from 1846 and the first person called me back and she said left a message. Well, there was the great fire of Jacksonville of 1901. Always the fire. Always. Yeah. Always, Always the fire. The Always burn the it down. Burn it down. Burn it down. So there was this great fire of Jacksonville in 1901, destroyed the entire city. So she said, you're probably not going to find anything. Uh, but then I got a call back from this paralegal. And she said, I got your message. And I started telling about my great aunt and how special she was, this matriarch who remembered everybody's birthdays. And, and I said, I know there was the fire. And so you probably can't find anything. And she said, yeah, there was the fire. But let me see what I can do. Mm -hmm. So by the end of that day, I had an email back from her. Uh, and she said, well, we found a John Sutton file. We don't know if it's the right one, but we should have it by Friday of this week, right? Uh, and then uh, this was, mind you, this is the week before I'm going back to Illinois for my great aunt's 100th birthday celebration. Wow. And uh, that Friday morning, I go in, there's an email from her, and she's like, uh, we found it. We found it. It's a John Sutton file. What do you want me to do? I said, take pictures. <laughs> and uh, across the Internet comes these images from 1846 of this envelope with a red wax seal, you know, before they had lick em, stick em envelopes. And you'd fold over paper and you'd seal it. Um, and here was this two-page document that was written by a lawyer that my great-great-great-great-grandfather had marked his ex on that set our family free. And um, mm -hmm. I was like, this is why I do what I'm doing. You know, suddenly, <laughs> love, the light goes on. The light goes on. <laughs> um, you know, it was like this amazing moment. Uh, and, and so... The, and I can go on about the process of coming to understand what that meant too. I, I don't want to. I don't want to give you guys a chance to weigh in or ask questions if you want. But I'm happy to go on because I love telling this story. Well, first of all, I want to be uh, when the story goes. When someone writes the story, I want to be one of the uh, producers. Okay, I I definitely want to be the producers because you made me smile. I, I'm sitting here, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's all I can say. You you've made me smile. Well, I'm glad. We're actually working on a bunch of creative projects that have come out of this because um, I think there's so much to learn from it. And um, part of it is this story about what estate planning can do to do something that crosses the, the, the 170 years into the future. You know, what we trust in estates lawyers, we sort of stand in this moment between the past uh, and the future. And we try to take a snapshot and capture who you are and what you mean to the world right now and uh, what message you want to leave to the people that come after you. So um, that's why it's important to do your estate plan because what you're saying to the world and to the future um, 
is what you cared about in this moment. Um, Terrence, did you? So um, yeah, and I do want to tell you more about this about the will too, and because because it wasn't just the will as it turns out. Um, mm -hmm. But I, but I'll get to that if you have, go ahead go with your question. Um, did you ever connect with like distant cousins who were also descendants from your great 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 grandfather? We're fortunate because we now have like this. Well, there was already uh, we already had this sort of family reunion group, um, but uh, we have like a Facebook page. Uh, so we all sort of stay in touch with one each with one another. Uh, we have reunions every couple of years, and I've been um, fortunate because the family asked me if I, I told the story at a reunion uh, on a Zoom last year, and uh, and they have fed me information too. I've found out some amazing things about other parts of our family and uh, different. I have one cousin who's a scholar who's doing a lot of research on uh, on his line of the family and, and what they've been involved with. So, yeah, it's it, it's a way to connect too. I, I think if anybody who is interested in getting involved in genealogy and family history, uh, there's so many more resources now than there used to be, and things are going online constantly. So that even if you tried ten years ago. Uh, you probably had to go to the library and ask a reference librarian to help you with it, at least when I was growing up. Now you can hop on the internet in your home and read the Jacksonville News from 1846 and and find out stuff that, that is useful to, to coming to understand your story. So, wow. I, I'm looking at someone just posted, Jeffrey George Moline. He ah. just posted uh, lucysutton.com. <laughs> is, is did he just do that? Is that... Is, is there a website for it? That's, that's actually my husband, who yes. is also a, <laughs> a, a, hey, a, a, a co-writer. Hey, Jeffrey. He's, he's, he's here, uh, no, okay, we, well, we, we want to make, if that is, uh, I would love, if that is a site that yes. our viewers can go to, I definitely, definitely want to make sure that we, thank you so much, Jeffrey. Um, there you go. Want to make sure that wow. that um, that all of our viewers go to lucysutton.com. Please, yes. please, please. Thank you again, Jeffrey. Yeah. And I have a there's like a, a podcast page, which is also the Last Will of Lucy Sutton, and we're working on these creative projects. But let me tell you this, the rest of the story first, if okay. that's okay. okay. Yes, because there was a, a contest to the yes. to the yes. will, wasn't it? Tell yes. us about that. So. Um, so after I, after I found the will uh, and I took it to the family reunion and one of my cousins was like, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, maybe we should use the name Sutton because we hadn't been using that name as part of our family reunion group. And my cousin was like, oh, the, ra the, ra the white man who raped our ancestor? Do we really want to put that name, you know, do we want to adopt that? And, and I said, I, I feel like this is something a little bit more complicated. You know, it's not quite as black and white as that. And besides, I think Lucy used that name. And... I think somehow Lucy had some agency in this and, and mm. she claimed that name. So, so yeah, we could take that name, I think. Um, so that was sort of that moment of experiencing that. But then a few months later, um, I was I kept thinking about this story and this relationship and yes, he owned her. There's no consent. We, we all understand that. And yet 30 years they were together. They had these eight children and six grandchildren together. And in the end, he made sure that they got to freedom, right? So I got to give him some props for, for that, for whatever other treatment he might have had for her. And I know that she made sure that this happened. So uh, I, I, I was thinking about it and I wrote an article and I, I speculated if somehow something like love could have come through, at least him caring about these children or 
her caring enough about her family to make sure that he would get the will done. So after I wrote this article, I got this email from a professor who said she had written a book called Fathers of Conscience, Mixed Race Inheritance in the Antebellum South. And she'd found all these situations where white men had left gifts of emancipation or property to enslaved people. And many times the courts would go, well, yeah, that's what he wanted to do, but we not have no more free black people in the state. So there's a statute that prohibits the emancipation of people in the state of Mississippi, for example. So you could not set people free. And I was like, oh, wow. Um, well, this would be really interesting if, if there was a contest in our family. All I know is there's a will, family made it to freedom. Hallelujah, you know, celebrate in 1846. But I kept thinking, if I ever write this as a novel or a story, and I started outlining a novel, and I thought, well, let's figure out a, uh, a villain. And so I made up a brother for John, and I called him Eustace, because it seemed like a good old-timey name. And I outlined this story about how you know he tried to keep them in slavery, but in the end, Lucy gets to testify, and she's like, Yes, John Sutton owned me, but I owned him just the same. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I was dramatic. Yes, he, you know, he needed me. And, you know, I was going to break it down, right? So I'm thinking about this and creating this outline and coming up with these ideas. And um, around that time, Jeffrey, who had been a practicing Buddhist for 20 plus years, and I grew up in a Christian household, um, but he was a Buddhist and he, he would chant twice a day. Uh, and part of it included a prayer for ancestors back seven plus generations. And I normally didn't chant with him. It wasn't something, you know, uh, but this one day I felt moved to and I got down on my knees. And as I was thinking about the ancestors, I felt John and Lucy were with me. Mm -hmm. um, and I still don't know exactly how to explain it but I felt it, uh, and I don't know whether it's, it's in my DNA, and it makes sense that if our ancestors exist anywhere, they exist in us. So, yeah. you know, life, life is never ending, it goes on. Uh, it transforms, the energy is still there, but they were there, and they said there's more to this story, and, and you need to keep pursuing it. And so I was like, okay, um, I'm gonna go with this, right? And so six months later, uh, I'm going to be at a conference of trusted estates lawyers in Florida, uh, the same organization that had gave me the directory so I could track down the document in the first place. And so I said, Jeffrey, while we're in Florida, let's go see the will. And he's like, yeah, okay, let's go see the will. Um, but I forgot, you know, it's like a big state like California, and it was like five and a half hour drive from where we were to where we needed to get to, to Jacksonville to see the documents. And, and we, we intentionally made it... Um, we were intentional about it and, and we thought about the drive and we looked up the fact that the Equal Justice Initiative was uh, at that time um, establishing the Peace and Justice Memorial where they were collecting uh, samples of soil from the places where all of the lynchings that had been documented took place. You know, Some 4,000 lynchings have been documented between the Civil War and the, and the uh, Civil Rights era. And the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson, who's portrayed by um, uh, Michael B. Jordan in uh, Just Mercy movie with Jamie Foxx, uh, they, they were doing this, this memorial. And so we had this online, you could look up state a county by county to see where the lynchings were. And so we said, let's count the lynchings in the, in, the, in the counties that we drive through on this five and a half hour drive. 
And, um, you know, that morning as I was in the shower and I was thinking the water was coming, I was like, what's it going to be like when I put my finger on that X that my great, 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 great grandfather made that set a family free? You know, how emotional am I going to be when this happens? And um, I kept seeing that scene from the movie Selma where um, Coretta Scott King is walking with Amelia Boynton Robinson and Coretta's a little nervous because she's going to go meet with Malcolm X. The movements are coming together. And Boynton Robinson, said, who's been through everything, says, do you want me to tell you what I think about at times like this? It gives me peace. She said, we're descended from people who built civilization, people who crossed vast oceans in the halls of slave ships, people who overcame terrors and tortures unimaginable, people mm -hmm. who create and innovate and love and their blood runs through you and it's pumping your heart right now. You are already prepared. Yes. Right? Yeah. So that's what I was feeling, you know, we, and we drive these five and a half hours and we get there and there's 126 lynchings that we've counted, you know, and you know that each one was, you know, not just a tragedy for an individual, but for a family and for a whole community. And that the terrorism of lynching was doing exactly what it was supposed to do, which is to cause whole communities to, to, to make sure they stayed in their place. Right. So, so that was that piece. We, we go to the courthouse. We go through, somebody's like, yeah, that's how you do it. Because, you know, two gay guys going to the courthouse. I think they thought we were trying to get marriage licenses because it was one of those, <laughs> one of the two counties in Florida that refused to issue any marriage licenses at all, rather than issue them to, to gay couples. We go through, we go down to the basement, we go to the probate department. I'm like, hey, we're looking for this file. And uh, I called ahead, and the clerk's like, I don't see no file. I was like, well, we called ahead, and she's like, well, you got to come back tomorrow. I was like, oh, no, we drove five and a half hours. We're not coming back tomorrow. Um, so she finally hands me this file. And it's like a little red well file, like the size of a lady's clutch purse. And it's almost like I have a sense of that great fire of Jacksonville of 1901, that the fire, you know, like smoke and ash almost, that these things have come, come overcome to be here. And I open it up, and it's like the documents are glowing inside because it's like my ancestors are like, oh, we're going to tell a story. They're going to tell a story. They're going to tell a story. And I open it up. And Jeffrey actually captured on videotape this moment when I open it up. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I put my finger on the X, and I'm waiting for the emotional release. And But the lawyer kicks in. And I'm going, wait, what are these other papers? Wait, what is this? Wait, OK. Here's an inventory. I, I understand that, you know, 300 cows, every cow is $2, a horse is $50, you know, I, I'm used to that. Uh, but then there's this document, this like petition. Um, and it says, you know, uh, John isn't of sound mind and that he is wandering in his intellect. And I, I realized that there really was a contest that was filed by my fourth great grandfather's brother whose old-timey name wasn't Eustace, but Shadrach, which was even more old-timey than I could have imagined. So, and, uh, so Shadrach challenged the will, and he argued that, uh, you know, that John was crazy, he was too old. Uh, he said that they had plied him with ardent spirits. In other words, alcohol. They'd been given him <laughs> to get him to do the will, and, uh, and that those children who were claimed to be his aren't really his, which was a funny thing because nothing in the will said they were his kids. So everybody knew these were his kids. This was his family. They lived as a family. And as it turns out, there's a, the, 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 the trial transcript was the judge's handwritten notes. So Judge Crabtree, who wrote down what the lawyer said, and the lawyer said, 
John was supposed to come into town to see me and I was going to do the will. It was a two days drive and John was too sick. So I went out to the house. I got there at 930. His family, not his slaves, his family fed me. Uh, I talked to them. Um, his sons explained that they used to live in Georgia, but they moved to Florida because he thought he could set them free in Florida because the laws were different there. But it wasn't until they got there that his sons told him that he couldn't do it. And it said that um, Lucy came into the room at one point and they asked her what she wanted to do. And she said, I'd just as soon stay here. But Shadrach has always threatened that he would beat us if he ever came to own us. Hmm. Now, the transcript then says, of course, her words are disregarded and it's stricken through. But yeah. because I'm a trust and estates litigator who found a file that survived the great fire of 1901 in Jacksonville, I have the file. And it turns out that there was a clerk who loaded a bunch of files onto a boat and saved them from that great fire. And all of that happened so I could be here to tell you that those words that were struck out were Lucy's words and that she existed and that she had a voice about what was going to happen to the family. Um, so, um, that tells me a lot about my mission, uh, and, and about why I'm here and, uh, why I'm sharing this with you now, uh, because they took an anti-racist act, you know, John mm -hmm. Sutton, you know, what does it take for a person to move with a hundred miles with 300 cows? to a whole different state and set up your family there thinking you can set some people free. And then you find out that there's a law that says, the Florida law said, if you want to set somebody free in the state of Florida, all you have to do is pay $200 per, per person that you're setting free, which is a lot of money, and pay a fine to the state of Florida. And you have to post a bond for their value lest they become a burden on the people of the state of Florida. Oh, and they have to leave within 30 days because we didn't have a no more free black people up in this state. <laughs> I mean, that's what the law right. says. You really yeah, could not that's set people lot. free. Um, wow. so, so when people, yeah, when yeah. people talk, say that it's not systemic, here we see it is systemic. See. It's systemic. Yes, it is. Right. You, yes. We, so this term anti-racist has been used a few times. Can yeah. can you tell us what that means? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, Ibram Kendi, the, uh, who's a professor and uh, writer and uh, just an amazing thought uh, person who's written uh, several books that are, I think are important. One is called How to Be Anti-Racist. One is called, um, I forgot what it's called. Uh, but he traces the history of, of really racism and the concept of race, racial ideas. Um, and, um, you know, historically, how there was somebody who was like a Portuguese trader who was really one of the first people who said, oh, even though slavery has existed for a long time and people trade one another and that kind of thing, if we actually you know, assign slavery to these black people, um, then that gives us all kinds of advantages of being white and it creates you know, these other layers of advantage for us. And so this idea, this concept of race that didn't exist before. People were European, people were African, whatever. People didn't think about black and white um, originally, but that was imported into the United States and got woven into all of our laws and our systems. And it was used by preachers to uh, to reinforce the uh, the power of the white people, white men who were in charge. Um, and so Ibram Kendi, who's done this history, um, uh, stamped from the beginning is the name of the other books about racism. 
um, talks about the fact that rather than focusing on whether somebody is somebody is racist uh, or using that as a basis for um, making decisions about how we're going to improve the world, we should look at um, we should look at racist ideas. We should look at because they could come from anybody and and because we live in a world that's filled with institutional racism, and if we want to eliminate the racism, we have to figure out where those racist ideas come from and then take steps to counter them. Mm -hmm. So to be anti-racist is to, is because if you just let things continue to be as they are, mm -hmm. if you assume that the air that we're breathing is full of racism, just letting things continue to be isn't good enough. So people who say, I'm not a racist, or you know, I, I don't do anything, I'm not a bad person, all of that isn't good enough when you already live in a racist environment. If you want to change the world for the better, then you have to be anti-racist. You have to be affirmatively deciding that you're gonna take steps to counter the racism that's built into uh, the institutions that we live in, the, the air that we breathe. You know, it's like asking a fish, can you tell that you're in the water? And the fish isn't like, I don't, I, I don't know, I'm just sucking it all in. But I think that's the way racism is for, for us in America. It's all around us. Terrence, I think that's so interesting because I just recently read an article called um, How a Genetic um, uh, Mutation Led to the White Race and how the first people were brown people and it was the location, UV rays and all those type of things that had to do with the changing of the skin color and how all of that was developed. And then people don't know exactly where you came from in your history. And that's why history is so, so, so important. If you don't know where you came from, you never know where you're going. And you don't know how to fight and argue things or, or go back and, and understand that um, who, who, who you were, who, who we are. And, and, and that's one thing what they did for those 300 years. They took that away. They took away history and took away heritage. But the thing about our people, which I found, find so unique, that we still find a way to incorporate it from our hair to our music to the way we dance it's all full circle and it just comes from our heritage wow yeah. um i i I'm, I'm gonna because we we are getting close to the end of the show and and terry first of all let me say th th this topic okay our topic tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is estate planning and the will of Lucy Sutton with special guest uh, Terry Franklin. Please, 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 please click like, share our YouTube page and make sure that you tell a friend about this show who wasn't on here tonight because his story have led to comments like, um, oh, oh my God, th th this is amazing. Wow, what a great story written years ago, very emotional. Um, these antique documents are something to behold and something else. I mean, we are getting comments from people that you are touching, Terry, that I'm telling you, I'm, I'm so touched. I, I'm, I'm forgetting some of my lines tonight. And some of these things are scripted. <laughs> but um, I mean, Terry, I, I do have one last question, but yes. so that, that, that we can uh, stay on track with the show and have a closing for Terry that I think would be important to all of us. So Terry, do you feel that telling your story about your great, great, great grandmother being her witness, so to speak, is part of your life's mission? Now, you might have let, said something about that, but I wanted to make sure that I that we clearly got that uh, uh, documented tonight. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I used to think 
probably like a lot of people, the history was about kings and queens or, you know, princes and uh, famous people or to ordinary people who did something exceptional like Martin Luther King mm -hmm. or uh, Brian Stevenson. Um, but uncovering the story has helped me realize that history isn't what's in the books, you know, it's, it's not like bronze and marble. It's it's what's in our hearts. It's the stories that we tell about ourselves. and and it's up to us to figure out how the future is going to be and what history is going to say about us. And so I've determined that it's my mission to bend the arc of history towards justice by sharing stories like this story of my family and my ancestors with, with people. And um, I think everybody should figure out what their mission is. Why are, why are you here on this planet? Um, you know, it's, and then lean into it. So my mission, Thank you, is to bend the arc of history towards justice. And, uh, and I'm doing it by trying to tell this story. We're like, I'm working on a novel, we're working on limited series for TV, um, working on all kinds of things. I have, a, I have a podcast myself. This is Sarah, by the way. Sarah is my great, great, great grandmother. She was 17 and she was a slave. Yes, this little old white lady uh, was 17 and she was enslaved. Um, that sort of tells you about the craziness of race and how ridiculous it is. You know, we try to say that only black people are supposed to be enslaved, but people who look like Sarah, my, <laughs> who, who would have known um, my, my grandmother, uh, that's how close we are to this history. Um, uh, we can change this, you know. My ancestors did what they could to, to make the world better, to, to make it okay for me to be here. And now we have to figure out what we can do. So use estate planning as an anti-racist device and ask yourself what you can do to bend the arc of history towards justice. Wow. I, I, I can't see all the hands out there, but if you all will just take a moment and clap right now for, for this show tonight <laughs> and Terry Franklin for blessing us, man. Uh, he said, he said, he said, it's a resource. And you have proven that tonight in so many ways a hundred times over Terry oh, thank and you. I cannot tell you again how blessed we are to have you on this show and thank you to Vosh for bringing him to us so yeah. thank you thank you thank you thank you um ladies and gentlemen we are at the end of our show um and we're about to sign off soon a couple of things I want to say before we get to the end um again on February 25th it is our one year anniversary show some of you who are our, you know, seasoned listeners, you've received an invitation so that, you know, you know what to do with it. You know, uh, read the invitation and we want to have you uh, be a part of our anniversary show on February the 25th. You know who you are. Um, thank you. Thank you all for listening tonight, for your questions, your comments. Denise, thank you for joining us tonight. I didn't say hello to you, my, 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 my dear sweet sister. Um, Sean, thank you. Rose, thank you. And we're going to leave you tonight with our um, words of the week. A good plan is like a roadmap. It shows the final destination and usually the best way to get there. That was written by H. Stanley Judd. And that's in honor of our show tonight with this wonderful man, <laughs> Terrence Franklin. Thank you for being here again. Ladies and gentlemen, until we see you next week, you all have a, a great week. And we look forward to seeing you once again on the next episode of He Said. He Said. He Said.
Good night, everybody. See you all next week. Thank you. <laughs>